Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And this is going to be our wrap-up show for the season headed into the summer months. Might be a little bit sporadic. I know there's a lot in the presidential sweepstakes going on. I keep calling it sweepstakes. Not sure exactly where that comes from. But there's something about this presidential race that kind of reminds me of Ed McMahon. You know, the guy kind of shows up at your door and says, okay, you're one. You're now the president. You know, the little, maybe it's just the Donald Trumpism or the Bernie Sanders and all these characters that we have going on. But I digress a little bit. We're going to have a little wrap-up show, and I'm going to do an hour of commentary. And that's a little bit new. No guests, just me and you out there listening to me rant and rave, pontificate. It actually sounds like the wrong word that I should say that I'm pontificating, but, and all. But let's get into it. Really got a lot of ground to cover. So many different points I want to talk about, but first and foremost, I want to mention that we are sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, Beckerman Public Affairs. Tell your story with Beckerman. And I think I want to get to the end. I'm going to talk about it a little bit, but. They have at the final note the importance of telling your story and how important that is, how critical that is when you're in a public affairs fight, when you're in any type of public fight, when you're in politics. You've got to tell that story. And you've got to tell it in a way that's going to make other people understand and other people convinced and other people want to move to your side because that's really what it's all about. It's all about storytelling. Now, the substance, this policy is important, but as we're going to see over the course of next hour, highlight a bunch of different facets of politics going on right now. A lot of it has to do with storytelling and framing and digesting and distilling complex issues into little, little sound bites. Because how much really separates different sides of different issues? So we're going to get right into that. I want to be in a little bit obtuse right now. But a couple cut points that I wanted to cover over the course of this podcast slash radio broadcast and doing a whole new thing here with the, uh, as I said, talking for an hour. Not so easy for me, as you, as you know. It's not so easy to talk and kind of go on. But the first thing I wanted to cover is Michael Oren. As you many know, Michael Oren was the U.S. ambassador, I'm sorry, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., and uh, he's out with a new book called Ally. And this, in particular, coming out now, has been a little bit of a bombshell in its allegations and some of the some of the analysis that he's had with regard to the U.S.-Israel relationship. We all know, we cover it closely, our listenership out there, everybody out there is covering the issue of Obama, the Obama White House, and what's going on with regard to Israel, Iran, and Obama's general posture. I talked about it a couple weeks ago. The, the idea, and I think, I think what it comes from, this psycho, this deep, Psycho. I'm not sure what the right word is, but this deep. Obama just doesn't get it, and what what is it that he doesn't get? I think you know. I don't want to get too much into the psychoanalysis analysis because I think that that's where people, you know, you don't want to go ahead and do that. Michael Lauren actually speculated about the fact that Obama is wounded or at least has these deep-seated anxieties about the Muslim world because of his father and some abandonment on the part of his Muslim father, the fact that uh, he didn't have that relationship, and then he's trying to have that rapprochement with the Muslim world. I don't know. I don't really get that. I don't want to go into that at all. But what was the – talked about it, about Obama kind of thinking that he's the most Jewish president and kind of looking at – his coterie of American Jews, the people who are close to him, and then taking from there the paternalistic attitude that he has towards Israel and towards particularly Bibi and, and towards the 
Israeli government over the past couple of years. What is it about Obama? So Obama kind of looks at himself as this liberal Jew. And not that there's anything wrong with being a liberal Jew. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, being liberal in general. I think that's these are legitimate opinions. I think reasonable people can disagree. I don't say that in a pejorative sense at all. But Obama kind of seeks to say, well, Israel's a reflection of me. I'm not sure why he gets that. And therefore, we have to take this attitude to teach Israel the right thing to do. We have to teach Netanyahu the right thing to do, how to act, how to behave. Because if not, it reflects badly on me. And maybe that's the way he feels. Maybe he feels that Israel's a little bit of a vassal state of the United States, and therefore he needs to use the influence of the United States to teach Israel how to behave on the world stage. And that seems to be his attitude about what he has been pushing on Israel and really singling out Israel as much as possible. I mean, look what's going on about as far as the difference in attitude and treatment with Cuba and Israel. Ted Cruz rightly pointed this out, that the United States is going to open its embassy in Havana, Cuba, a, a regime that has not disavowed communism, has not disavowed its repression of human rights, is not a free society, and yet he see, Obama is rushing headlong to go ahead and placate and for all kinds of reasons, business reasons, whatever, but to ignore some of these massive human rights issues in Cuba with regard to freedoms and ignore all those, but yet seems to not, Israel does not seem to be able to do anything right in Obama's Context And do you think that perhaps Obama should sit back and say, oh, these guys have a point. Israel might have a point. Well, maybe he doesn't like the regime. Maybe he doesn't feel that the right should should be – the Israeli right should be in power. But they are. They're elected as opposed to the Cuban president who is not. They're elected. These are elected representatives. And yes, it's a narrow coalition, although it's not a narrow coalition for the right, if you will. It is, it's only narrow at this point because Israel Beitenu chose not to be in the, in the coalition. Victor Lieberman decided to stay out. We've discussed that in the past. Now, I'm just trying to understand this whole thing. So along comes Michael Oren, who is now not no longer an ambassador, no longer a historian, and I highly recommend his books, his other books, which are quite incredible, Six Days of War, probably, probably the best book on the Six-Day War, an incredible seminal event in world history, I believe, for a lot of reasons, and Faith, Power, and Fantasy in the Middle East, uh, really a great book about American attitudes towards Israel in particular, but the Middle East in general and how they were shaped by American Protestant, I don't want to say evangelical because it wasn't really a word back then, but American Protestant missionary zeal and the identification that Americans have had with Israel over the years. So just to take for a second, Michael Oren, now a... Javier Knesset from the Kulanu party, the centrist party, the middle of the road party. And he, his thesis coming from his years of serving as the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. is that Obama, the Obama administration has gone out of his way. Obama, Kerry, Clinton have gone out of their way to kind of have give devote some special treatment to Israel and to go ahead and really, despite the fact that the Israeli government, which was a right-wing government the whole way, has abandoned some of the right-wing orthodoxies, has imposed a settlement freeze, did a whole, many different, what they would term to be confidence-building measures. It was never enough at any point for Obama, for the Obama administration. And when you sit back and think about it and look at this and look also at the same time the counterattack against Michael Oren by various figures in the 
Intelligentsia of Washington, Martin Indyk, uh, Leon Wieseltier, uh, many others who have kind of, who have gone ahead and really attacked him for, on various, the saying he's wrong on the facts, he's wrong on the opinion, how can he psychoanalyze President Obama? Israel has never lived up to the various promises that they've made. But it is kind of curious that over and over and over, it's Israel that's really been singled out by Obama. Obama has devoted so much attention to Israel, to not just around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but specifically around the Israel-Iranian conflict. And this should all make us pause. Or we should all say, gee, what's going on here? I mean, why this fixation? Other presidents have had, you know, Clinton towards the end of his term had this fixation. You kind of felt that Clinton, meaning William Jefferson Clinton, had this fixation because he wanted to win the Nobel Prize and he wanted to get there. He wanted to be the one who could finally deliver. And perhaps he would have. Perhaps he would have. I think the history has told us that it was Arafat who walked out, who abandoned the pretense of making a deal with Ehud Barak and that Barak was willing to go a long way towards fulfilling Clinton's desire for a two-state solution. But Obama really has, it's just the amazing fixation that they have had as well as, I don't want to say demonization because it's not demonization. I think it's, that's wrong. I don't think that that is the exactly what it is. It's not that they've demonized Israel. It's that they've taken every opportunity to really treat Israel differently than the relationship that Israel, that the United States has with any other country. A friend or foe. I don't think friends, we have this paternalistic attitude. We don't tell England, well, you know, you really should grant Scotland its independence. It's not right for the Scots to not be free. You know, they had a referendum. Yes, yes. But there are many, even though the referendum lost, it only lost by a little bit. So therefore, you should allow the Scots to be free because they really want to be free. They want to be free of the yoke of British rule. Well, we don't do that. We let people go ahead and have their free and fair elections is what democracy is all about. And we don't take that paternalistic attitude. We take, take the wait and see attitude. Let's see what happens. Let's see how the people feel. Let's try and do that. But that has not been the attitude. So why this discussion? Why are we going on and on and on about this Michael Lauren and why is this a big deal? We keep ad nauseum beating this horse to death about Obama and Iran and Israel over and over. We're just trying to figure out, okay, what's this guy up to? What What's John Kerry up to? Well, we just passed another deadline. We've just extended the deadline right now on Iran. And it's just breathtaking how the president, how this administration continues to pursue a deal with Iran to the exclusion or to the detriment or to the opposition of longtime American allies. And I'm not just talking about Israel. We're talking about our Arab allies as well. We're talking about Saudi Arabia. We're talking about the Emirates. We're talking about various other parties who do not want to see an empowered Iran. And it's just, it's just amazing the extent to which the Opposition or the supporters of Obama have framed this, have framed this issue, is that if you're not for an Iran deal, you are warmongering, you are pursuing war, because that's the only alternative, as if, of course, the sanctions weren't working. But it's really this, the extent to which they continue to marginalize or try and marginalize those that are opposed to a deal with Iran. Why? On substantive grounds. They're opposed on substantive grounds. They do not believe that Iran number one will hold to a deal. They take Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, they take him at his word that he doesn't, he's not going to hold to a deal. He's not going to allow inspections. They take seriously the idea that Iran will not reform as a terrorist state. Why are none of these legitimate policy alternatives and or legitimate legitimate policy claims it's just incredible the pathology i'll say i think that's the right word the pathology of this administration of going to head and pursuing this iran deal at any cost whether or not it benefits the allies and 
who knows whether this will be a defining issue as we move forward in the presidential campaign. Hillary Clinton is still saddled with support of the Iran I'm sorry, of the Iraq war. Her vote to go to war, of course, she says she well, she wouldn't have done it had she known. But Bernie Sanders could be running strong on this issue. Could and Martin O'Malley, of course, and there are others and there's talk that Joe Biden might get into the race because his his the dying wish of his son, Bo Biden, was that Joe Biden would run and his his living son Hunter Biden wants him to run. Maybe Joe Biden decides, well, yeah, I've tried it before. I'm going to try it again. I'm best positioned. And really, Hillary can't go the distance. We'll have to see. I don't know. You know, Hillary is hard to figure out right now what can actually wound her. There's so much that I would have thought, so much of substance that I would have thought that would go ahead and knock her. And it just doesn't seem to be happening. It just doesn't seem to stick. Now, yes, Bernie Sanders is drawing big crowds. He is doing well in the polling about people who know him. But in the end, we'll have to see whether he can really be formidable. Formidable on a money basis, formidable on an organizational basis, because running for president takes organization in many, many states primaries are made up of multiple primaries state by state and you have to compete in each one you can't skip them that's actually a lesson that clinton learned that obama out organized her back in 2008 certainly out hustled and out organized her it wasn't that obama had more money it was that obama out organized her and will bernie sanders be able to get enough sandernistas to go ahead and get out there and out-organize Hillary Clinton. That definitely remains to be seen. Now, let's just take the Republicans for a second, because it seems that every day there's another Republican running for president. And I really want to go ahead for a second on this show and kind of exhaustively look at each one of the declared candidates and maybe some of the ones that aren't in there. going to give my take, because it's just a crazy situation with this field. Right now, I believe there are 13 declared candidates for president on the Republican side. Now, people are going to say, well, some of them can't win. Well, I actually tell you a lot of them can't win, in my opinion. A lot of them are not going to be president. Why are they running? Well, everybody has their own reasons as to why they might run. And I wouldn't be dismissive of anyone in particular right now because there are so many out there who just can't win. Now, when you say can't win, it actually requires or would require a lot of people to falter in order for that to happen. And we've been known that others, that people have faltered. Okay, there is no President Dick Gephardt. There is no President Gary Hart. There's no President Howard Dean. Okay, recent history has many different, and there's no President Hillary Clinton, at least not yet. So recent history has told us that you got to run the race. And there's certainly a lot of pitfalls out there. But of the 13 declared candidates, those are Jeb Bush, Ben Carson, Chris Christie, Ted Cruz, Carly Fiorina, Lindsey Graham, Mike Huckabee, Bobby Jindal, George Pataki, Rand Paul, Rick Perry, Marco Rubio, Rick Santorum, and Donald Trump. That's in alphabetical order. And then on top of that, you have John Kasich, the governor of Ohio, as well as Governor Scott Walker, of Wisconsin as two heavyweights who have yet to announce on the Republican side. So let's take it one by one. And a lot of people, we've talked about this in the past, about the tiers, if you will, when you have such a big field, the tiers of candidates that you have a first tier, second tier, third tier. And there are a whole bunch of candidates who are new candidates, a whole bunch who have run. But why do the tiers matter? Well, at this point, out of the 13, possibly 15 who are going to run, there are only going to be 10 spots in the debates. And if you don't get into one of those debates, it's hard to really make the case to the voters, to the unknown. So people listen on this show and me, we're going to know all those candidates. But the people who are kind of casually looking at it right now, they're not, they don't see on stage. They're not going to think that you're for real. And that's going to matter as far as money, it's going to matter as far as organization, it's going to matter as polling. Now, the strange thing, and we mentioned this, is in the past, is the idea that they're doing national polling. They're taking a national poll to determine who should be on the stage for these debates, which is bizarre because the primaries and the primary system really goes through Iowa and then New Hampshire and then South Carolina. And really, as far as the contenders and the people who are in contention to win in those states, it's not essentially people 
and I, you know, this is just the way it works, but it's not really people who are in Wyoming who want to have a say as to who gets on that stage. So in a way you're skewing that, but let's kind of go through the individuals that are out there, pluses and minuses. And I want to start, I guess we should start with Jeb Bush. Why should we start Jeb Bush? Well, he's first alphabetically, he's also Bush. So if you're, he's got both the pluses and minuses of, of Bush and I think there are a lot of people who feel, well, you know, it's inevitable. He's the establishment Republican candidate, probably a little more to the conservative side than other than people really think. They kind of look at Bush as middle of the road or Bush as, you know, particularly his father, middle of the road, his brother, uh, Bush 43, ran a little, as a conservative. But I think a lot of Republican primary voters view him as a big moderate uh, in his presidency. And Jeb has that baggage going along with him. Now, he's given some excellent speeches. He's really put together a top-flight campaign. He's got a great organization. He's got an incredible fundraising network. He will have the most money. So what does that mean? Well, there is this perception that Jeb Bush cannot connect with the average Republican primary voter. And which, so which is he going to win? Which of these primary states is he going to win? Now you might have said that he's not going to win Iowa, but certainly as of late, winning Iowa is not the key to the Republican nomination. Is he going to win New Hampshire? Well, there's a lot of the more moderate, the first real primary state, Iowa is a caucus. Is he going to win New Hampshire? Uh, well, there's a lot of competition for New Hampshire, I think. There's a lot of competition that. There's Chris Christie, who's also an establishment, and we'll get to him a little bit. Uh, there are, there's George Pataki, who's gonna certainly make a run for New Hampshire exclusively. I think that's all he's gonna do is kind of, there's Rand Paul, because uh, New Hampshire has a libertarian bent. And so there are others out there, and Donald Trump is polling extraordinarily well in New Hampshire as well. There is that populist strain in New Hampshire, up there in the north where people tend to be a little more populist. Uh, remember Pat Buchanan in 1992 won the New Hampshire primary against George H.W. Bush. So let's not forget that New Hampshire has not always been kind to the Bushes. And then you would say, okay, South Carolina. South Carolina will be Jeb's win. But Lindsey Graham, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, is in the race. He's the favorite son, and South Carolina could be a little more complicated for Jeb Bush. So there's a lot at stake for certainly. He's got to win. There's no question you can't be the presumed nominee of the Republican Party if you can't win individual primaries. Now, I want to give a second to Chris Christie because Chris Christie got in the race this week, and Chris Christie's star or the perception of his star has dimmed so much as to be politically noteworthy. And I still think Chris Christie can win. I still think Chris Christie could, could catch on fire. He has that political chops. He has the political instincts. He has the political abilities to go ahead and make a difference, make an impact in the Republican primary. But can he win? Can he win? He's not going to win in Iowa. I think that's very clear. It's just not – there's just not enough appeal for him in Iowa. Can he win New Hampshire? Well, I think he can He can certainly – the town hall style of New Hampshire, the New Hampshire-type voter, appeal to Chris Christie, a guy who claims – you know, who's taken on the unions, who has taken on uh, – who has reformed the pensions, who has done a whole bunch to kind of bring common sense to government, and I think New Hampshire – primary voters like that, and he has that crossover appeal to Democrats. So at least then he has demonstrated that crossover appeal. The question becomes, however, with Chris Christie, is does the record match the rhetoric? And right now it doesn't. Christie's stewardship of the New Jersey economy has not been great. His reform of the public sector, of pensions, and entitlements and all this has not been great. Yes, he has engaged in union busting, but not as much as Scott Walker has. And we're going to, we'll get to more on Scott Walker. So does he win on that? I mean, does he have that substance that, that went along with it? And of course, there's the big hug with Obama back in 2012. 
uh, in the post Sandy and did that. That certainly rubbed a lot of Republicans the wrong way, uh, including certainly, I would imagine, his one time uh, uh, bro Mitt Romney. So there's no question about that, that that's a tough road to hoe. But we'll see. Chris Christie is certainly in it. He's certainly formidable. He knows how to get attention. He knows how to play the media. And that will certainly augur well to his benefit. But the question is, has his time passed? Is he is he able to kind of get that star power back? One thing not to discount is that Chris Christie did and has visited 37 states over the past year as head of the Republican Governors Association. He was well-situated to launch a national campaign out there. Now, let's get the, to the Donald. And I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on on Donald Trump. I, I think he's serious. I think he is running for president. I think, uh, you know, he actually, this is the first time he's really gotten in. And Donald has a message. There's no question he has something to say. I think a lot of us might not like it or appreciate it, although there are many people in the country who do. The one thing I'm amazed by with Donald, actually there are a lot of things amazed by, but it's not the hair, it's not all this other stuff. It's the fact that everything seems to be so simple. He seems to have a great solution for just about everything. Right? Immigration? Okay, we're going to build a wall. I'm going to build a great wall. And knowing Donald will probably be like a tourist attraction. And we'll, we're going to do this. We're going to, it's, everything has such, if you, if you could just apply the Trump magic to the federal government, all would be well. But the question is, why is he running? Is he going to win? I, I just don't see how he could win. But yes, he's doing very well in the polls. At the same time, you would think, okay, he's doing well, get his name ID, name recognition, get more money for his shows, more of a celebrity, continues to be a celebrity. It's unfortunate that he has now severed ties with both NBC Universal over his comments about Mexicans as well, and they're no longer carrying his Miss Universe project, pageant, excuse me, and he's also severing ties with Macy's. So perhaps this is going to become a business liability for him. That was that unexpected. I don't know uh, if his handlers or if he himself had really thought about the impact that he, if you, assuming you take him seriously, now you take him seriously as a presidential candidate, he's you have to actually care about the things that he says. And if you care, you can't go ahead and call Mexicans rapists and criminals. And the like, it's just, it's just way out there. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of his finances as well. His attitude is bring it on. I think that's a, I don't mind that attitude at all. I think that, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people out there in the world who want to be as successful as Donald Trump. Whether or not you believe he's worth $8 billion or worth $3 billion, there are a lot of people in the Republican primary Electorate who want to be as successful as Donald Trump. And for some reason, he, you know, he can take advantage of that backlash. I think similarly to the way Marco Rubio has done that. Marco Rubio has now had not one, two, three New York Times ridiculous stories on his finances, on his parking tickets, on, on, yes, he's paid off student loans. Can you imagine? The guy's paid off student loans. He used money that he got from book advance to pay off student loans. Shocking that Marco Rubio could do that. Now, but let's talk about Marco Rubio for a second. Marco Rubio, 44 years old. It's kind of young on the young side to be running for president. Certainly, a uh, a generation younger than many of the contenders, uh, Jeb Bush being 62, Chris Christie spoke about 52, and Donald Trump 68. Marco Rubio, according to the intelligentsia, according to the pundits out there, is the candidate on the Republican side that Hillary's advisors, that Hillary Clinton fears the most. So what is it about Marco Rubio? Well, he's Cuban. He's got a great life story. He's from Florida. He speaks fluent Spanish and Latinos are a constituency that they need, that the Republicans need to worry about and continue, should, should continue to worry about. Uh, he has proposed a moderate stance, at least by DC standards, on immigration. And he's generally seen as a motivating speaker, a motivating force, as somebody who can inspire Americans. The question is, do Republicans want to be inspired? 
are there Republicans out there who want to be inspired or they're just angry? I, I said this, you know, even as a Republican, I think there are way too many angry white men in the Republican Party, and there are a lot of them, and they continue to get angrier. There are just so many angry people with regard to things that are going on in this country. And is it going to be out of anger or is it going to be out of hope? Now, of course, we gave hope a chance with Obama, and we were not rewarded with that. But will Marco Rubio be able to kind of change that paradigm? And will, because of the immigration issue, will many Republican primary voters who tend to be very, very conservative in many different states find Marco Rubio attractive? Now, Marco Rubio also has the issue. Which primary is he going to win? Is he going to win Iowa? Unlikely. Is he going to win New Hampshire? Well, there's a lot of very significant competition. Donald Trump, Jeb Bush, Chris Christie, uh you know, Rand Paul, a lot of people who can compete very strongly in New Hampshire for various constituencies and South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, Jeb Bush. Uh, you have a lot of different Mike Huckabee uh, that can go ahead and compete in some of these states for the different patches of voters and Ted Cruz. Let's not forget that the uh, that there are some in this in this primary season who are going to command a very significant following, uh, not a winnable following, but a following in order to and they're going to stay with their five seven maybe even ten percent which is going to take away from some of the other candidates so marco rubio needs to figure out what that strategy is going to be that's going to bring him into the nomination and because it's such a wide open field because nobody seems to have an advantage or clear advantage perhaps that the rule doesn't hold that a Republican needs to win one of those early states or that, I'm sorry, not just a Republican, that a presidential nominee needs to win one of those early states in order to carry themselves forward to the nomination. So we mentioned Rand Paul a couple of times and Rand Paul, 52 years old, uh, son of Congressman Ron Paul, longtime libertarian, the, the flag bearer for the libertarian wing of the – Republican Party and Rand Paul. Uh, well, I'll just go back to saying saying it. We said before is kind of at odds with the Republican Party on many different issues. And but I think he brings a very thoughtful perspective. But now the one thing I told you, I said a couple of weeks ago that I I really found to be way off the reservation. Rand Paul was him saying, "Well, there's going to be a terrorist attack." So there are people out there, I'm sorry, colleagues of his, senators, who hoped there would be a terrorist attack in order to prove him wrong and to say, on particularly on the Patriot Act and reauthorization of surveillance programs. And the fact that he could even think, it's just profoundly arrogant that he would say and that he could think that that would be the case, that they would that they would want a terrorist attack on the United States of America in order to prove Rand Paul wrong. Uh, you know, sometimes you think that he is going to be normal. He's a senator. He is. But on the other times, there's this appeal to the fringe, to people out there that is just, I, it just seems unpresidential. I don't know how else to say it. It just seems unpresidential. And, uh, but Rand Paul definitely has an interesting, uh, constituency, interesting following. And let's move to Ted Cruz now. Now, Ted Cruz, the Tea Party favorite, Rand Paul being a different type of Tea Party favorite, but Ted Cruz certainly being a Tea Party favorite is probably the most strident, the most significantly, uh, you know, I, I don't care what it is because these are my principles. I'm not about governing. I'm about, um, I'm more about po- making sure that we do everything right and that I'm right and this is the way. I'm definitely an uncompromising stance that we have to stand for. These are the principles of the United States of America. These are the principles supporting Israel, supporting uh, a strong foreign policy uh, against Obamacare. I go on and on. Ted Cruz is the guy. If you feel that if you feel very strongly about that this country is headed in the wrong direction and you're strident about it and you don't care and you're not willing and it's not about reaching across the aisle, Ted Cruz is your man. And he's more than willing to criticize his, his colleagues in the Senate. He is more than willing to kind of, to, met, to meddle in the affairs of the United States House of Representatives. 
Ted Cruz is definitely a a force. There are going to be, and he will get his significant percentage, uh, probably not a winning percentage, but he is going to get a significant percentage of uh, different primaries. There are going to be enough people on the Cruz side who are true believers who really feel that Ted Cruz is the only choice for president. He's the only guy because he's the only one who really speaks the truth. And uh, Ted Cruz, age 44, this uh, same as Marco Rubio, also uh, Cuban heritage, uh, also Cuban, I say Cuban-American, and uh, which I think is is really great for the Republican Party to have uh, Latinos running, Spanish speakers running. I should mention Jeb Bush, of course, is a Spanish speaker as well. Now let's go to Kali Fiorina for a second. Kali Fiorina is the only uh, only woman in the race on the Republican side. Age 60, uh, she had run for United States Senate in California in 2010. She lost. California, very difficult state for a Republican to win. And then she decided, of course, I'll run for president. Okay. Right? Is there is there a pause there? I mean, what is it as CEO of Hewlett Packard, she never run held elected office. Now she feels that she can be president of the United States. Now, I I know people who know Kari Fiorina. I know that she is no slouch and certainly uh, CEO of Fortune five hundred company, one of the leading tech companies in the United States. You know, there is a good case that she can run a business, but President of the United States um, now now what people are saying well, she can criticize Hillary. She can take the fight to Hillary because she's a woman. You know, that, that really seems to be defining or reducing the entire debate between Republicans and Democrats, the entire presidential debate between a personal narrative of one woman against another. And, you know, if you believe that the only reason people are going to vote for Hillary, I'm sure there will be some, is because of the historical nature of electing a woman president. So therefore, the Republicans should have to nominate Carly Fiorina in order that there be a counter woman, because a woman's definitely going to win. Well, then I guess I see the logic in that. Otherwise... Not sure why she's running. And Lindsey Graham, senator from uh, from South Carolina, really running, at least in my mind, to focus the Republican Party on foreign policy and to say he's the only one qualified from a experienced perspective to be commander in chief on day one, as he says over and over, of the United States. Now, Lindy, Lindsey Graham is interesting because he is a conservative. But he's been willing over and over, time and again, to reach across the aisle on various issues. And not known as a conservative firebrand, he's more known as just a, uh, you know, kind of a, a deal-making conservative. I don't know, that might be, he might, you know, they might push back on that word, I would have to say, you know, deal-making conservative. But from my perspective, uh, that is where... You know, Lindsey Graham kind of falls out in the willingness to go ahead and cut a deal for the good of the country. And I think Lindsey Graham has been a big picture guy. I, I, I commend the fact that he has been out there looking at some of the big pictures, looking at Social Security, looking at some of these reforms that are needed desperately in this country. Mike Huckabee. And I yeah, come guy, I'm kind of going in, in, in alphabetical order for the announced candidates right now. Uh, Mike Huckabee. Uh, I think his time has passed. He was governor of Arkansas. Uh, I think he was a a breath of fresh air to a lot of Republicans uh, two cycles ago when he won the Iowa caucuses. And does he really have the ability to go ahead and make an impact and win? Will he win Iowa again? I don't think so. I mean, you have Ted Cruz in the race. You have... Others in the race, uh, Scott Walker is definitely going to be a huge contender in Iowa. Ken Huckabee be the one uh, with a very cluttered field? Is he going to somehow be somewhat, someone new and excited in order to do that? And the other thing with regard to Mike Huckabee is he is, yes, he's going for the moral conservative vote, but he is not as social conservative vote. The moral vote, but he is not as conservative on economic issues that many Republicans would want him to be. Not exactly a pro-business conservative, and I think that that's something that uh, that a lot of Republicans should Mike Huckabee kind of uh, rise in the polls. We'll kind of, we'll kind of look at it uh, right now. But he's made a lot of money in his radio show, 
and he'll probably make a lot of money on the radio show and continue because of that. I think that there is no question that when you are a TV personality running for president is going to augur well to your overall business. So certainly I think Mike Huckabee is going to be a factor, can be a factor, but he's not going to win either. And Bobby Jindal, kind of the opposite as far as Mike Huckabee. Yes, very conservative, but certainly a big ideas guy, definitely economic conservative, has had some issues in Louisiana. Not sure exactly why he's running. Also in that 44 age bracket, a lot of candidates born in 1971 out in the Republican field. And not sure really why I could see why Bobby Jindal's running. Maybe he thinks it's time and to go ahead and do that, but don't see the path to victory. Can't understand exactly. Louisiana's not in good shape. Maybe that's it. But I, I just don't see it. Indian American... Uh, certainly highlights some of the diversity in the Republican Party. I'll definitely uh, say that about it. That brings me to George Pataki, my former boss, and definitely have a incredible uh, warm feeling with regard to Governor Pataki, three-term governor of New York State, certainly somebody who has the ability to not just reach across the aisle and work with Democrats, but actually, I think, co-opt Democrats in a lot of ways and bring them over. Now, the question for George Pataki is, is there a moderate path in the Republican primary. Is there an ability for a moderate, an avowed moderate, somebody who is going ahead and running that moderate? Now, Chris Christie, you would thought had would have been that, but he's kind of running as a, a conservative with an appeal towards Democrats and independents. George Pataki is saying that I'm a moderate and the Republican Party needs to moderate because it's about winning the general election, a la John Huntsman. Uh, and, you know, kind of maybe a little bit like John McCain had ran run in the past. That has not worked. The Republican Party has changed tremendously. It's not a Northeastern Party anymore. And not there is not a tremendous presence of Northeastern Republicans. Uh, yes, the Republican congressional delegation in New York has improved. But George Pataki probably won't win New York. And the question then becomes, how does he go ahead and win the nomination? Is it New Hampshire? Can he spend enough time in New Hampshire? Does he have enough organization in New Hampshire to get into the top tier to get out there? It remains to be seen whether there's going to be a good rationale for this candidacy. Uh, but not to knock him, people should not underestimate George Pataki as a politician. Uh, his ability to win is quite unparalleled in for Republicans in the Northeast. Uh, he was the underdog when he ran for state assembly. He was the underdog when he ran for state senate, and certainly the wild underdog when he ran against Mario Cuomo back in 1994 and upset that liberal icon. So perhaps a fire can strike again. Hard to say exactly what the path is. A lot of people have to falter in order for that to happen, but that could happen. Now let's get to Rick Perry. Uh, Rick Perry, uh, 65 years old, best remembered at this point, not for being a, the longest serving governor of Texas, which I think is quite incredible when you think about a state like Texas. Uh, a really great success story as far as the Texas economy, as far as uh, deregulation, as far as taxes and a lot of different issues in Texas. Rick Perry, quite, I, I think, a very successful governorship. Rick Perry, best remembered for the oops moment four years ago when he ran and not being able to recall which of the three federal agencies he would go ahead and eliminate. And certainly not prepared, I guess, or just couldn't remember or had a senior moment. Whatever it is, is that recoverable from? I think Rick Perry was incredibly well-positioned, incredibly qualified last time around. Will the voters give him a second chance, or are they enamored by some of the new faces that have come about? Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, or if you're just an establishment guy, uh, Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush certainly has deep Texas cred, deep Texas inroads. So is there an ability for Rick Perry to kind of come out from all that? Uh, hard to see, hard to know exactly at this point what's going on. And then the last declared candidate we get to is Rick Santorum. Rick Santorum, full disclosure, I was a Rick Santorum delegate uh, back then. I like Rick Santorum from his time as a U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania, but Rick Santorum can't win. Rick Santorum isn't going to win. Rick Santorum couldn't, you know, lost by a huge margin as Senator of Pennsylvania. And I thought, you know, he 
last time around, you know, just for because I liked him as uh, as uh, I would support him because I thought he always did what's right. And this time around, I can't understand why he's looking to run again. Uh, it just doesn't, you know, he has some deep pocketed backers, and that seems to be all you need these days in order to get there. Uh, and now let's take the two who are not in, the two who are kind of in the race. Uh, one being John Kasich, the governor of Ohio. An incredible economic turnaround for the state of Ohio. You know, Ohio being a Rust Belt state, uh, really having tremendous economic problems. And John Kasich has, uh, former congressman, became governor of Ohio and has really done a great job doing that. Will he be able to tell enough people around the country? He's getting in late. Will he be able to tell enough people around the country about his success story, about his ability to go ahead and transform Ohio in order to have a really serious policy argument uh, or a policy uh, rationale for his candidacy? And it's very possible. Midwestern governors, I think, are very should be very formidable candidates uh, for the pres for the presidency. Um, and. Will John Kasich be able to get there? I don't know whether he gets on the stage right now in order to do that. And then if you don't get on the stage, if you don't get on the debate stage, how do you go ahead and pivot to get around, uh, to get around that, that handicap? To not be looked at as being in that top 10 tier of, uh, and then there's Scott Walker who is, Governor of Wisconsin, who boasts having, or certainly under his belt, has won three elections uh, in the past four years. He he won election the first time for governor, the second time for governor. And in between, there was a recall election. And Scott Walker has been demonized by public sector unions and by unions around the country as being the the scourge of the unions, as ending collective bargaining. And that's why there was a recall election. Walker survived. And certainly enhances stature greatly. Now, many conservatives and many Republican primary voters feel that public sector unions have a incredibly sweet deal. They get a lot more than other workers do, and therefore, therefore, these Walker is the guy who can actually reform a lot of the things that voters don't like about. Uh, the the economy about the un- about unions about high costs and uh, but you know the one cautionary tale is that the Republican Republicans were always boosted by those Reagan Democrats by those blue collar workers by the by those out there who may not have been in lockstep with Republicans but kind of felt a little bit more comfortable with Republicans on foreign policy issues. And, you know, they're just looking, you know, lunch pail, lunch pail Republicans and, you know, who want to go ahead and just have a little bit better, a little bit better, something a little bit better for their family. Uh, and if the Republicans want to kind of campaign against that middle class lifestyle, they risk becoming, I think, more marginalized uh, on on that. I'm a, you know, it, it. I'm a little bit scared about that, but I think Scott Walker really has what it takes. I think he has a great, uh, certainly a great narrative. He's a great campaigner in person uh, and around crowds. He he's he's well spoken. He's very articulate. He's not flustered, and. You know, we'll have to see. Let's see what happens. Uh, certainly he is in a position that he almost has to win Iowa right now in order to be the guy. Now he has some Iowa roots. He certainly has, um, he certainly has the ability to win Iowa and he's done well in the polling. So the question is now, between now and January of 2016, does, is he able to keep the momentum going in order to go ahead and be the front runner for the nomination. It's certainly possible that he is the becomes the front runner for the nomination, and certainly in that top tier of candidates. Uh, one you know interesting thing right now is that Walker and others have said they're going to skip the Iowa straw poll. 
So that's the uh, that had long been a test of strength that happens over the summer, and it's one of those uh, things that's hardly democratic. You pay voters to come, or you don't actually pay them to come, but you bust them in, you give them free food, and then they go ahead and vote for you. Uh, it's a tremendous expense, and that Iowa straw poll has actually been canceled because Walker said and others had said they weren't going to participate in that. So that's the rundown of the presidential field. It's definitely wide open. Now I want to just um, I think it definitely needs to be mentioned. Uh, the major news of the week, at least domestically, was, or this past week, uh, if you include last Friday, was the Supreme Court deciding five to four that uh, same-sex marriage is a constitutional right, that people have a constitutional right in order to marry whoever they want. And it, it's really, I don't see that in the Constitution. Let's just take that. And I, I disagree with the ruling. I think that it's, I think it really should be a state-by-state issue. But you know what? I kind of moved past it. I hate to say it, and really, you know, personally, I, I, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with it. I would like to, you know, I, I like to make sure. I, I would, I wish that the ruling was otherwise, but that's not the issue. I think that the ground has shifted so much under the feet with regard to same-sex marriage over the last ten years. It's just incredible when when George W. Bush ran in 2004, it was such a huge issue with the referendums on there. It actually brought a huge number of conservatives and evangelicals out. And if you look just 10 years later, this the, the polling and everything has shifted around that same-sex marriage is supported really throughout the country in many areas. And I think the Supreme Court actually did the Republicans a huge favor. Mike Huckabee probably going to disagree. Scott Walker is going to disagree. They're both rejecting it, calling for constitutional amendments. Ted Cruz out there against it. But I think he did a huge favor. It's the law of the land. Let's move past it. It's not an issue the Republicans need to, should be dealing with. They need to get past it, deal with the big issues, foreign policy, the economy, and you know the total failure of this administration, and why would you elect a, ter- a third term of Barack Obama? Let's not focus on these issues like same-sex marriage. Just not necessary. It's not going to get us anywhere. Now, I want to switch back because we're going to you know, kind of run out of time. You can talk for an hour, and you don't never know, uh, you know, exactly, um, you know, how much time you're going to be left with. But to get some of the tidbits at the end, and I want to say it's a special edition of Spin Class, wrapping up the year, profiling presidential candidates, a little bit rant and raving with regard to uh, various issues out there, and we're sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, and you know, Albany ended with a. Uh, not pretty much with a thud. I think this. Uh, we talked about some of the issues that were out there. I, I, I would just want to, you know, make a couple observations. Number one, with regard to Albany, it's just incredible when the legislative leaders are arrested in the middle of the session, and you got newbies in there, uh, meaning John Flanagan, Senate Majority Leader, and Carl Hasty as the Assembly Speaker. And, and I watched the you know, the negotiation that went into overtime. You know, the, you got to marvel about Shelley Silver, and you got to give him credit. I mean, this man knows how to negotiate. I mean, talk about a master negotiator. Never showed his cards, never said what he wanted until the end, until he actually got it. And then he would always, you know, kind of, if you heard from insiders, always kind of one more thing and got it. Carl Hasty was kind of the opposite. He made it very clear what his number one priority was. He made it very clear that all he cared about essentially was rent regulation. Everything else was secondary. It kind of makes it so easy to go ahead and extract from the guy, to go ahead and do that. And it seemed that the assembly just didn't have the ability to negotiate well uh, on this issue. At the same time, I don't believe that John Flanagan played enough of his cards because if you know what exactly what the other guy on the guy sitting across from you on the table, what he wants and what his priorities are, you should be able to say, okay, fine, you want that? This is what, you know, this is what I want to return. And Hasty kept, and the, the Assembly Democrats kept kind of arguing, well, no, no, our position is right. Yours is wrong. Our position is right. So therefore, we should get rent anyway, irrespective of anything else. Now, when you think about it, it's incredible that this education tax credit could not pass this year. It's just absolutely incredible. It's, it's all the stars should have been aligned. The governor went all in. The everybody was pushing for it except for several members of the assembly. And we don't even know who they are. I mean, we know who they are, but we don't know specifically because, you know, of this lack of democracy in the assembly of the idea that nothing will come for a vote unless 76 Democrats support it. No coalition building, no democracy, if you will. There are 150 members of the assembly, so it really should take 76 members, not 76 Democrats, in order to get something passed. But the 
the idea that we're only going to go ahead and pass something like that, there can be like 10 holdouts in the assembly or, you know, 20 or 30, you know, maybe somebody who are vociferously opposed, but even you could still have 40 Democrats still uh, supporting something and it's still not going to pass. And, uh, you know, I, look, there was a lot of speculation about Carl Hasty, whether he was going to be a friend to the Jewish community, to the Orthodox community in particular. And I think it kind of come out that uh, he hasn't been. I mean, he really just hasn't been in a lot of issues. Uh, the Israel Po issue, I think that that was really, uh, that was just the amount that that wasn't going to pass uh, the assembly for a lot of reasons until Carl Hasty made it. Supposedly, according to sources, he did not want to do the BDS bill, which was the, uh, because some of the liberal members felt that it was stifling a free speech. The BDS bill was basically said, that New York will not fund any institution that allows boycott, divestment of sanctions of Israel. I think uh, that's a big victory. That's been sitting there for a while in the assembly, not moving anywhere. And it's just, uh, you know, I, whatever it is, whoever it is is going to have influence. I think the those members that are sympathetic to the Orthodox community need to go or to the needs of the private school community, yeshiva community. Uh, it's It's a different situation than you had with Shelley. The, the the voices are going to have to be known, and particularly with regard to the speaker. And I think that Carl Hastie is going to need to be pushed uh, significantly by various advocates out there because there's no question he has not been a sympathetic friend, a sympathetic ear of the needs of the Orthodox Jewish community. And the degree to which the East Rampo issue was made a racial issue, a black Jewish issue, is, is really sad because it's really not – there's real policy issues out there. And that brings us, you know, back to East Ramapo for a second, because I know I was going to talk about public affairs and positioning yourself and whether it's right. Now, the board in East, in East Ramapo, the school board there can probably say, well, legally, we do everything right. Legally, we're right all the time. But, you know, it's quite amazing that until this past year, until this past year, they did not never hired a PR firm both internally or externally. You have a, a, a board with unique challenges, with unique issues, and they really never explained it to anybody. This issue with regard to the short change in the district has been around for a decade or more. I remember dealing with this issue back when I was in government. This is an issue that has been around, and somehow it got ignored. It just actually, not somehow, it did get ignored because nobody wanted And it only became an issue. They only talked about the underfunding of the district once they started getting in trouble. Beforehand, they never wanted to talk about anything. They Never wanna. Most of the members of the school board won't appear on camera. They won't do interviews. Nobody knows who they are. They just kind of stay very silent until they go into executive session. It's not a way to be in, in politics. Now they'll say, "Okay, we're not politicians." Well, guess what? You're elected. You're a politician. You have to deal with it. Come to terms with it. Okay, and start dealing with it. And it just it just goes to show as well is that you can be right. You can be right on all the merits, but if you can't frame the issue and you can't go ahead and bring that issue to the to the fore in a uh, appreciable way, you're going to lose. You're going to lose that debate. You're going to lose that argument. And you need to go ahead and present yourself uh, appropriately to the public. And if you haven't spoken, you know, there are people who do this and they haven't spoken. It just goes to show what's going on in these Rambo that if you don't, you know, PR, public relations, or public affairs is not there as as it should not be an add-on. It is a core part of the mission, a core part of uh, a strategy. It's a it's a piece of strategy with with most businesses because government has tremendous ability to impact uh, uh, business. And then <clears throat> to the most, I think important or most significant issue of this week, uh, which is just the unprecedented, un, the unprecedented unloading, double-barreled shotgun of Bill de Blasio, of Mayor Bill de Blasio against Governor Andrew Cuomo, basically criticizing Governor Cuomo for everything. For a total, for the failure of his agenda in Albany. As we, as we know, we've just discussed it. De Blasio did not get very much done in this session. The things that he wanted, he only got a year of mayoral control. Uh, he did not get the full extension of rent regulations like he wanted. His 428, well, 421A plan fell flat and assorted other issues. He just didn't do well. And some people would just say, chalk it up to de Blasio. But, to de Blasio just not being knowing the difference between politics, which he seems to be very good at, and uh, negotiating or 
sausage making, which he seems to disdain. But guess what? That's the playing field. You have to deal with that. And so instead of kind of accepting that, taking his licks, moving on, I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't understand why the Republicans didn't want to give him anything. I mean, come on. Uh, he raised millions of dollars for Democrats in order to upend the state Senate. So de Blasio, where does he go from here? It's hard to know because, uh, you took on the, you took on the 800 pound gorilla and that gorilla has a lot of ability to hurt you. Uh, that being Governor Andrew Cuomo, who still holds a lot of the cards, uh, for, uh, de Blasio. So we'll see. Maybe the soapbox, maybe this turns into a proxy war between the Bernie Sanders and the Hillary Clinton wings of the party. We shall see as we move on. And there is a special edition, a season wrap up of spin class. Thanks. Thanks for joining us here on a Thursday evening on the Nachum Siegel Network.